Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from a book of Matthew with opposition to Christ's ministry at an all-time high. What started out as curiosity turned to criticism. Criticism turned to contempt. Contempt turned to conspiracy. A conspiracy on the part of the religious elite to destroy this man, Jesus. That's what the Pharisees were discussing when we left them last week. Not only because they disagreed with his approach to the Sabbath, but because he continually proved their man-made regulations illogical and unscriptural. You have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your traditions, he would go on to tell them. For though you honor me with your lips, your heart is far away from me. And in vain do you worship. That's why the Jewish authorities counseled together the Lord's execution. But it was not time yet for the Lord's execution. So Jesus stepped away from that conflict to continue his earthly ministry and fulfill another messianic prophecy. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning now in verse 15. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, The Gentiles will hope. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, any number of times in the gospel record, Jesus warned the people not to publicize his miracles, not to announce his arrival, not to broadcast his identity. See that you tell no one, he instructed the leper upon healing him in Matthew chapter 8. See that no one knows about this, he cautioned the blind men in Matthew chapter 9. Now on those two prior occasions, the text offers no tangible reason for Jesus to command such silence. But here, as he warns his followers for the third time, not to tell anyone who he was, Matthew gives us an indication why. 
to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah about the nature of the true Messiah. Now it's true, Jesus did not want to become famous merely on account of his healings. And we know the added fanfare may have preempted his father's timing a bit. But those aren't the real reasons that he chose to limit the spread of his fame. Over and above anything else, Old Testament prophecy portrayed the Christ figure not as a celebrated hero, but as a suffering servant. That's who he must be. And why he did not want to see his miracles so highly acclaimed. Because this was not his time of exaltation. It was the time of his humility. As Isaiah set forth 700 years before his incarnation. Well, that is where Matthew's quotation originates. In Isaiah chapter 42. It's actually the first of four passages known to us as the servant songs. Each highlighting a slightly different aspect of the Messiah's service. This one in particular emphasizes the unassuming nature of the Lord's servant, whose divine equipping and quiet demeanor will bring forth justice and hope. Those certain attributes of the Messiah, they were foretold by Isaiah and fulfilled by Jesus. That's what Matthew appreciates and sets forth in this morning's text. First, that Jesus is the chosen of God. Well, take a look back at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. The scripture ascribes any number of different titles to Christ, yet none is more fitting than the title revealed by Isaiah here, my servant. In the royal terminology of the ancient Near East, a servant was a trusted envoy, a noble representative, one specifically chosen to do the bidding of the monarch with all of the authority thereof. Initially, Isaiah identified God's servants as the entire nation of Israel, chosen to represent his interests on the earth and provide a witness to the surrounding nations. And yet, Israel could not fulfill this mission in earnest because of their own recurring spiritual unfaithfulness. Also, Isaiah trots out another servant, This one, Cyrus, the king of Persia, who would deliver God's people from the bonds of Babylonian captivity. Under his rule, the Jewish people were allowed to return to Jerusalem, where they would rebuild what was left of their temple and their town. And while Cyrus certainly served God's purpose in that regard, his help was only temporary and was plagued with many problems of its own. 
Now, if we follow Isaiah's prophecy through, we find that one servant after another was tried and found wanting. That is, until the chosen one of God introduced to us here. In fact, the reason this servant needs a fresh introduction is because he is so very different from those who have come before. A reality which the Lord acknowledges in the verses that originally preceded this text. At the close of chapter 41, Isaiah says, Formerly I said to Zion, Behold, here they are, these servants. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is no one up to the task. And there is no counselor among them who, if I ask, can give an answer. Behold, all of these servants up to this point have been false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. All the other so-called servants of the Lord have failed to accomplish what God set forth to accomplish. And so 700 years before his incarnation, Isaiah introduces us to the servant who stands above all the rest. Now before telling us what this servant will be like or what he will do, God wants us to appreciate the relationship between himself and the one he would send forth to do his bidding. That's what we hear at the outset of verse 1. When the Lord says, this servant is mine, he's speaking of one with whom he has an intimate and loving relationship. In fact, when Matthew brings this Hebrew prophecy forward and states it in the Greek language, he doesn't use the typical word for servant. No, he uses the word pais, which is often translated child or even son. That's how the Lord characterizes their relationship. He says, behold, my servant son, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. That's how he is introduced to us. Not only at the outset of Isaiah's prophecy, but also at the outset of his own earthly mission. As though it were coming to us through a divine echo chamber. We hear the same affirmations reverberate at the time of Jesus' baptism. When the heavens opened to the sound of the Father's voice saying, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The same words identify the same servant. Who despite his anonymity in the book of Isaiah, has been revealed to us as none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Any number of times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to by that name, the servant of God. In fact, it was the prevailing title for Christ in the early church era. 
when worshipers were more inclined to actually study and appreciate Old Testament prophecy. And if we will take the time to consider it properly ourselves, well, we will realize very quickly that Jesus is the Lord's perfect servant. That Jesus is the chosen one of God. That Jesus pleases his Father in every respect. Are you there? And by quoting this prophecy, Matthew assures us that Jesus is the chosen of God and the herald of justice. Take a look at verse 18 again. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, this is not the first time that Isaiah spoke of the Holy Spirit's involvement in the ministry of Christ. When speaking of him as the root of Jesse in chapter 11, he said, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And again in Isaiah chapter 59, when describing the Redeemer of Zion, the Lord said, My spirit which is upon you, my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth. And then perhaps most famously, as Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, when reading in the synagogue, he declares, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And not only was he one with the Spirit by way of their eternal triune relationship, not only was Jesus conceived by the Spirit in his mother's womb, the Spirit was also set upon him in the days of his flesh to equip him for the ministry of the Word. That's what the Spirit is at work doing in Jesus in fact, every time Isaiah mentions the Spirit's involvement in his ministry, in chapters 11, 42, 59, and 61, every time Isaiah mentions the Spirit's involvement in his ministry, it has to do with the proclamation of the truth. Because as we know, that is the Holy Spirit's primary concern. The giving and guarding of God's word. That's why Jesus needed the Spirit's anointing. So he could proclaim the truth of God's justice to the far-off nations. This pursuit was so central to Christ's mission. See that word appear again in verse 20. It comes from the Hebrew mishpat, or as Matthew translated in the Greek, krisis, which means judgments, order, or that which is right. So how are we to understand its use here? 
when God says, this servant of mine will proclaim justice among the Gentiles. Well, based on the context of these statements, it seems the Lord is speaking of one who will come to restore the world to right order. Now, if we go back to the origin account of Genesis, well, we quickly realize what that right order is. At the time of creation, the world was a place that perfectly proclaimed the excellencies of the Almighty. A place where God and man could live in right relationship, one with the other. A place where people pursued nothing but Yahweh and His glory. That is the right order of things in God's economy. But of course, as sin entered the world, it all became terribly corrupt. No longer was the greatness of God on constant display. No longer were God and man together. No longer did people live exclusively for him. Yeah, but at his coming, the servant of the Lord would call the world back to account. That's what Paul told the Athenians when he said, having overlooked the times of ignorance before this, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. That man, in Acts 17, is the same man in Isaiah 42 and Matthew 12. Jesus, the chosen and anointed one, who God appointed to speak the truth of Scripture and set the crooked straight. Yeah? Matthew's quotation here proves that this servant is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. For Jesus is the chosen of God, He's the herald of justice, and he is the picture of humility. Take a look back at verse 19. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. As the Jewish people of the first century heard rumblings about some sort of Messiah, well, they envisioned a political leader, a military commander, a loud and proud ruler of men. But that's not the kind of Christ that the Old Testament promises. Not at all. That doesn't make Jesus any less fervent about pursuing his mission He's just going to accomplish it a different way. One that is characterized more by quietness and gentleness than boisterism and strife. That's what Isaiah and now Matthew have identified in the ministry of Christ Jesus. Knowing that the true Messiah will not quarrel he will not cry out. He will not carry on in the streets. 
Now that's not to say that Christ would never combat heresy or preach emphatically. No, what this tells us is he would not go out of his way to argue for argument's sake or raise his voice to draw personal attention. Perhaps now we understand why Jesus withdrew from the conflict with the Pharisees. Perhaps now we understand why Matthew chose this prophecy to quote at this time. Because unlike the ways of men, who always seem ready to pin their ear backs and go to war, Jesus went about his mission with meekness and humility, often quieting the crowds who had gathered and fleeing from man's attack. Surely that is how the gospel writer saw Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. That and the fact that he never once advocated violence, he never organized a mob, he never used political power, physical force, or emotional agitation. No, he believed as Solomon believed, that the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Yeah? As this prophecy has shown us, Jesus is the chosen of God. He's the herald of justice, the picture of humility, and the agent of grace. Take a look back now at verse 20. A battered reed he will not break off, we are told. And a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. Now to further describe the nature of Christ's ministry, Isaiah cites two different metaphors. One, a battered reed. The other, a smoldering wick. And though these images mean very little to those of us living in the age of modernity, those in his original audience would have understood well the prophet's illustrations. In the ancient world, you see people use reeds to make flutes, make pens, and a host of other household items. And when someone went out to gather these reeds, he would have inspected them rather carefully to determine which ones were useful and which ones were not. Whenever he found reeds that were bruised or imperfect, well, he would just snap them in two and discard them because the craftsmen only had need of those that were unmarred and untainted. So, What about the master craftsman then, Jesus? When he goes out to gather reeds for his kingdom and finds in the group people who are bruised and battered and imperfect, will he toss them aside in favor of the best and brightest? Will he snap them in two? No. No, as the prophecy promises, the servant Messiah will not 
break a reed off just because it's a little bent. And the same goes for the picture Isaiah gives us of the smoldering wick. You see, lamps of the ancient Israelites used wicks made of flax. If the piece of flax was damaged, well, the lamp would not burn clean and bright as it was supposed to. Instead, it would only smoke and smolder with very little light to show forth. Well, obviously, those faulty wicks needed to be snuffed out and replaced because they were, at that point, worse than useless. Was that the way that Jesus operates his ministry? By extinguishing those who are defective in favor of a better model? No. As with the reed before this, Christ will not put out a wick just because it is smoldering. And we should thank God for that. Because as we begin to extend this metaphor, we realize that every one of us is a battered reed. That every one of us was a smoldering wick. That every one of us was flawed, bent, and ripe for being discarded. And yet, praise God, glory, glory, and hallelujah. Jesus did not toss us aside on that basis. No doubt that's what we deserve as those who have been ourselves found useless, Romans chapter 3. But in Christ, in Christ, we stand to receive something different, something better because of this thing called grace. That's what he offers, friends. A grace that says to the battered reed, in me, you will not be discarded, you will be restored. A grace that says to the smoldering wick, in me, you will not be extinguished, you will be rekindled. A grace that says, even though you don't deserve a chance to be made right with the living God, I won't rest until that very thing has been accomplished. Yeah? Jesus is chosen of God. He is the herald of justice. The picture of humility. The agent of grace and the hope of the nations. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. 
A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Contrary to the expectations of the Jews, the Messiah of Scripture does not limit his redemptive work only to the Hebrew people. No, God's plan always included the Gentiles in the flesh. Those who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Those who were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Now, those, those who are found in Christ Jesus, who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If there is hope for you today, friend, that is where you will find it. It is not in your intellect. It is not in your athleticism. It is not in your wealth or your career. It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ the chosen servant of God. Without him, you are separate. You are excluded. You have no hope. But with him, (laughs) with him, hope springs Eternal. Because even the likes of you and you and you and me can be brought near. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have seen what it is that we deserve. We know that our flaws, our imperfections, our sin deserves a discarding. But Lord, as the prophecy states so clearly, that's not the way that you go about things through your son Jesus. And we are ever so thankful for that. I pray, Lord, that we would understand what and who he is. Lord, that we would find reason to place all of our trust, all of our confidence, all of our hope exclusively in him. For apart from him, we can do nothing, we are nothing, and we'll never know you. But with him, you have promised that we could be brought near, reconciled to the God who made us. Help us to know that joy and that privilege as we hope 
in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time we've had to come and study. Continue to be exalted in our midst, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org.